thank you for having us. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. We um, <clears throat> finished our first meeting off this morning with a verse from uh, John chapter 12. It was the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, uh, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's a incredible verse. We were reminded this morning that and that's in every area of life where there's blessing. When something dies, blessing comes forth. That's why we're here this morning to remember the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I heard that verse, I was reminded of a missionary story that I've been uh, enjoying for the last few months. Uh, it starts in 1921 when a missionary couple from Sweden felt called by the Lord, David and Svei Flood, they were called by the Lord to go to the Belgian Congo to serve the Lord. They went down there and uh, parked in a missionary station and met another couple from Sweden, the Ericsons. And so together the couples prayed about thrusting out into the harvest field of Africa. Uh, the Lord led them to a little village uh, Nordella, I think is the name, and uh, the chief of the village was opposed to them coming and serving in his village. Uh, he felt that it might offend the local gods, so uh, they still felt exercised, and so they uh, moved a half a mile up the side of the hill and built themselves two mud huts and sought to meet people to win them for Christ. Uh, they weren't able. All the doors were closed. The only uh, person that uh, they met was a young boy that the chief allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. And so Svei Flood thought, well, you know, if the Lord has called us here to share the love of Christ, if I can't talk to the village, I'll try and win the boy to the Savior. And so she was able to do that. The young boy eventually made a profession profession for Jesus Christ, trusted Christ for his salvation. Uh, the families struggled with sickness and malaria and lots of health issues. And after two years, the Ericsons uh, went back to the mission station and David and Svei continued on. Shortly thereafter, Svei Flood was uh, found she was pregnant. They had already one son, David, who was two, and um, she was pregnant with another baby. She had a baby girl. Uh, named her Anya. Uh, of course, the malaria was hard for Svei, and 17 days after Anya was born, uh, Svei Flood passed on to her eternal reward. Uh, they say that something snapped in David's heart. Uh, he loaded up his uh, son, uh, took the baby and uh, said that after he, I guess he after buried his wife, um, said that God had taken everything of any value in his life away from him. He was done serving a God like that. So he went back down to the mission station, gave his baby Anya to the Ericsons and left for home for Sweden. Eight months later, the Ericsons, uh, they felt, were poisoned by a chief, and they, uh, they too passed on. That left Anya with a, an American missionary couple 
who's now almost three, uh, they fell in love with her. Uh, they came back to uh, the United States of America because they felt that if they stayed in Africa, they wouldn't be long before, because of legal, uh, legal challenges that Anya might be taken away from them. So they served the Lord in uh, North Dakota. Anya grew up, went to uh, Bible school. They changed their name, her name to Anna, and she went to Bible school, Aggie, I guess, or Anna Aggie. Uh, she went to Bible school. She met a young man named Dewey Hurst, and they got married, and they started serving the Lord. Uh, in 1962, so that's 40-some years later, uh, they moved to Seattle where he became the president of a Bible school in Seattle, Washington. Aggie was quite encouraged with the amount of, the amount of uh, Swedish influence in the air. There were lots of Swedes, and that was her heritage. One day in the mail came a magazine uh, it was about missions work in far-off lands. She couldn't read it. She didn't understand the language it was written in, but as she was thumbing through the magazine, she came to a picture in the middle, and it was a cross, a white cross in the African jungle, and it had Svei Flood written on it. She got in her car. She went down to the, to the college, and she got somebody to translate the article. The... Uh, the article basically said that it was written by a young man who was a pastor in Zaire, the Belgian Congo, and he told the story of how a white missionaries had come there and hadn't seen much fruit for their labors. And so after much hardship, they left. Uh, one young boy was saved. He eventually grew up and became a school teacher, convinced the um, chief to allow him to put a school in the village he used that school to in his own words lead every young person who came through it to Jesus Christ there were um, at the writing at the time of the writing of the article 600 believers in that village the chief included um, it was all from the sacrifice that faith flood had made uh, a couple of years later, the um, Bible school gave Svei Flood and her, or sorry, Aggie and her husband um, a trip back to Sweden. So she and her husband went back to Sweden and she looked her father up. Uh, her father had gone home, David had gone home and remarried and started and had another family, had four other children. So she tracked the children down and had a reunion with her half-brothers and sisters. Um, found out about her dad, where he was, and uh, he was dying. He lived a life of uh, sin and alcoholism. Uh, and, and so Anna or Aggie wanted to see her father, and they said, well, you know, you can. He's not doing very well, but um, only one rule he has, you can't talk about God and his presence. So Aggie uh, went to her father's, and uh, when she walked in, she said, hi, Papa. And so he started to cry. He said, Anya, you know, I never meant to give you away, but I just didn't know what to do. And so um, Anna said to him, well, you know, Papa, it's okay because God took care of me. And he stopped crying and he turned to face the wall. He said, don't mention God's name in my presence. That's the reason all this happened. 
That's the reason my life is like it is, is because of God. And so uh, Anna had the opportunity to tell her father that it wasn't for naught. The death of Sveh was not, uh, not without eternal purpose. And she had the opportunity to show her father the article and what the Lord had done through the death of her mother. Uh, Anna tells us in her, uh, in her story that that was the afternoon her father was restored to the Lord. Uh, he went home to heaven a few weeks later. Uh, she came back, um, back to Seattle. A couple of years later, she uh, was given... Uh, uh, her and her husband went on a given by the, the college, given an opportunity to go to London to a missionary conference. We're sitting in the congregation of a missionary conference, listening to this man from Zaire preach about what the Lord had done in his home country. After the meeting was over, uh, Anna went up to him and she said, "Would you have ever, by any chance, heard the name Faye Flood?" Uh, he talked about representing a national church in Zaire of 110,000 baptized believers. And so, of course, he didn't speak English. He spoke French. And so through translation, when she asked, had you ever heard the name Faye Flood? He was able to tell her he was the young person, the young boy that was saved, led to Christ by her mother. He invited um, Anna and her husband to Africa to see the place where her mother was buried. And so she said it was this opportunity to go and, and see that cross in the jungle. So it was very moving to be um, um, greeted by those who'd saved through her mother's sacrifice. Uh, actually, it was interesting. Uh, the brother who was converted, that young boy, said that Sveifla was actually a hero in their part of the country, and yet she'd never seen anything accomplished, it would seem, for the Lord in her life. The point is that that afternoon, um, they went back to the little church in the village, and that pastor preached from John 12, verse 25. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. This Faith Flood story was... Just the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, as we've been reminded this morning, he died. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the message of the gospel. Paul preached that he died according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. So if we could, let's please turn to John chapter 3. And we've been reminded by the children this morning that when those men found the Lord Jesus, Nathaniel said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law wrote, the one whom the prophets talked about. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, the Death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was written about in the Old Testament scriptures. His burial, his resurrection, it was written about. That's what the Old Testament was about. And so we want to think about that. We want to think this morning about 
uh, his burial. We think often of his death upon the cross, not as a historical event. Right? That doesn't help anybody that Christ died as a historical event. But that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. And so I want to think this morning about his burial. I think about some of the great people of faith in the Gospels. What is faith? If you had to define faith, what would you say, brother? Faith. Faith is the subject of these hope of the identity of things that are not seen. Does that sound right? <laughs> it's biblical, isn't it? That's what the Bible says. The evidence of things not seen. We used to sing with kids all the time. Faith is just believing what God says he will do. Hey, there were men, women of faith in the Gospels. We're going to read about one. We're going to read about one we were reminded of from uh, the verse up here on the wall this morning. John chapter 3, verse 3. Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Who was that said to? Nicodemus. What was Nicodemus? What kind of a man was he? Well, he was a great man, wasn't he? He was a great man. Did he know the Bible? Nicodemus most likely had the whole Old Testament committed to memory. I think that's possible. Orthodox Jewish children would have had the Pentateuch, the first five books, committed to memory. Um, you think it's possible to memorize the whole Old Testament? No. <laughs> um, well, I, I think I read a story about a brother who used to be in this area. Is that true? He thought he was going to lose his eyesight early on in his life? August Van Rijn. And um, how much of the Bible did he memorize? Does anybody... Hey, it was most of it, right? It wasn't all, but it was most. That's what I heard. Interestingly enough, then he never lost his eyesight. But he wasn't sorry that he memorized most of the Bible. He said it still came in useful. His grandson's right there. <laughs> his grandson's right there. So that's true, right, brother? And so, so to say that this morning, is it possible? It is possible. Nicodemus did it. Um. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ could challenge him as he spoke to him, fairly challenge him about knowing these things he talked about. Because, hey, this idea of the new birth is recorded where? Just in John 3? No, it's recorded in the Old Testament. Hey, men have always, men and women have always needed to be reborn. Not since the days of the Lord Jesus, since the days of the garden. When sin came in, men and women were separated from God. And we needed to be born again. And so the Lord Jesus challenges Nicodemus, uh, gives him some clues to interpreting the word of God. And so we want to think about that. Uh, Nicodemus asked this question, how does it happen? Uh, the Lord Jesus explains. He says, no one has ascended in verse 13 to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're grateful, Father, for the uh, Holy Spirit that helps us to understand. And we pray now that you would, by your Holy Spirit, lift the Lord Jesus Christ up in our midst, that we might see him, we might be drawn to him. We pray for your help and for your blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 24 is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Luke tells us a story about two who left the city of Jerusalem to walk home. They were disorientated in life. They were um, challenged in their thinking. They had hopes. Uh, They had ambition for the future. And on that weekend of Passover 2,000 years ago, uh, it was all gone, all vanished. Uh, They're leaving Jerusalem. I expect never to return. There was nothing left there for them, or at least they thought. And so Luke tells us that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. What does he do for them? Well, it says that uh, Luke tells us that the Lord Jesus opened to them in the books of Moses, right? In the Psalms and in the prophets, the things concerning himself. That these things had to be. This is what had been prophesied. This is what the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to. The central event in all of eternity. You know that, right? Eternity is divided by one event. You know, we hardly know anything about time before creation. For all of our understanding, it really starts, as the kids remind us this morning, at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you know about anything before Genesis 1? Well, um, we know that God existed, right? Um, you know, Peter gives us a clue to about time before or eternity before Genesis 1, verse 1. He says that we're not redeemed this morning with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God appointed from the foundation of the world? As the Lamb of God appointed before the foundation of the world. A past eternity knew a crucified Christ. Uh, What about a future eternity? What do you know about eternity yet to come? I mean, we were reminded this morning of the book of Revelation, Revelation of Jesus Christ. There's things hard to understand in the book of the Revelation. But we know this. That for all of eternity we'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. What will he look like? A little lamb as he's been freshly slain. That's what the Revelation tells us. And so when we say that 
The cross of Jesus Christ divides all of eternity. That's the Bible teaches us. And so Nicodemus is trying to work through these things in his mind. It's hard to understand. The Lord Jesus tells him that, hey, these things were written about before. And so he gives him a key to understanding the Bible. That same key that was given to those two on the road to Emmaus. Christ in all the scriptures. And so, uh, here's a man, as we say, knew the whole Old Testament. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What What does Nicodemus think about? Where do you think his mind goes? Numbers chapter 21, right? That's where he goes. That's the account the Lord Jesus is talking about. He's telling Nicodemus that all the types in the Old Testament point forward to the anti-type. And all of those pictures point towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What book does Nicodemus think about when the Lord Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man? He thinks of the Psalms. Right? The title given in the Psalms for the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. He knows that. And so the Lord Jesus brings him to the books of Moses, the types of Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Then he brings him to the Psalms. Just like he did in Luke chapter 24. And then he tells us, and then the Lord Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What verse does Nicodemus think about when he hears this? He gave his only begotten son. Everybody's <laughs> thinking of that for sure. What else? Hey, it's our favorite Christmas verse. Huh? What's it say? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Hey, we boldly proclaim this morning the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't a son born. He was a son given. Hey, that's what Nicodemus would have thought about. Isaiah 9 verse 6. Think it changed Nicodemus' life? This message changed his life. Was he born again? Yeah, I can't imagine he wasn't born again right here. John chapter 3. Nicodemus is an honorable man of Scripture. He came to Jesus by night because he understood something of what it would cost to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It would cost Nicodemus everything. He knew that. Because of his position, what he did for a living, it would cost him everything to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he wanted time to think about it. But he made the right decision. And so we have that as we turn over to John chapter 7. We have Nicodemus, as I say, I suggest, already born again. John chapter 7, a great passage. As you, and just as a side note, as you um, 
read through the Gospel of John and you study the Gospel of John, it's helpful to at the same time study the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23. Because all seven of the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23 are in John's Gospel. He was a student of the Feasts of Jehovah. In fact, uh, some say that uh, apart from understanding the feast, it's near impossible to understand John's gospel. That more than 60% of John's gospel is in the context of the Feast of Jehovah. I think that's true. 60% is in the context of the Feast of Jehovah. Well, you go through and you look and that's true. John chapter 3, what time of the year was it? Passover. It's the end of John chapter 2. John chapter 5, Passover. 6, it was at the Passover. Uh, John chapter 7, it's the time of the year. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. What was the Feast of Tabernacles about? What happened during the Feast of Tabernacles? It was that one week of the year when Israel as a nation would gather and build booths and sit in these open booths and look up into the nighttime sky and think about how God had brought them through the wilderness. How he provided for them. How had he provided for them? Fed them every day. Um, Water from the rock. Think it was a lot of water. Did you ever picture that? Three million people plus livestock. How much water do you think it was? Well, you don't have to speculate. Psalms tells us rivers of water flowing provide for his people. Uh, We have two accounts of the giving of water from the rock. Moses' day. And so that's what they would have been thinking about. They would have been thinking about how God had provided for them through food, through the manna, through the water. And so that's why on the, when on the last day of the feast, what did the Lord Jesus do? It says on the eighth day he stood up and with a loud voice he said this, If any man thirst, let him come to me. They understood what he was saying. They rejected him that day, willingly rejected him. But not all of them. Uh, there was a man there, uh, again, named Nicodemus, the same man from John chapter 3. That's what we have in verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? John chapter 3 is the first Passover. You think that was the only time Nicodemus met with the Lord Jesus? What do you think about that? You think he came and saw the Lord Jesus again? I can't imagine he didn't see the Lord Jesus every time he came back to Jerusalem. I mean, that's what he's challenging the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, how would you judge a man before having heard him? I've heard him, he says. And so I just assume that, hey, the Lord Jesus met many times with Nicodemus. Every opportunity that Nicodemus had, he would meet with Christ. Um, He would have become an avid student of the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus had given him the key. Although he knew it by memory, Christ is the key to the Old Testament. We have that in the life of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul was converted, it says that immediately what he... Now, he knew the Old Testament. 
But when the Apostle Paul was converted, what did it say he immediately began to do? He began to prove to those people of his day that Jesus was the Christ. How did he do it? From the scriptures. What scriptures? The New Testament? The Lord hadn't used him to write the New Testament yet. From the Old Testament, proving Christ is the Messiah, the coming one. And so, here's Nicodemus. He would have met with the Lord Jesus lots. Uh, again, uh, beginning to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, then somewhere through, let's turn to the end of John's Gospel. Somewhere along the way, Nicodemus uh, became friends with a man named Joseph, Arimathea. Now, we don't know exactly how it happened, but we see that they're together now at the end of John's Gospel. Now, if we go through and think about the Gospels and compare them one to another, we find that there's very few miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. In fact, there's only one, right? The feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle that's recorded in all five Gospels, or all four Gospels. Um, hey, John's gospel is more than 90% unique to himself. Uh, most of it, we don't read anywhere else except this incident. And it's that incident, the bearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's recorded in all four gospels. Now, in the first three, in the synoptics, it's Joseph of Arimathea. And so if we would read... Matthew, Mark, Luke, compare them, we would find some things out about him. He was rich, right? He was a counselor, a man of position like similar to Nicodemus. Um, he was a disciple as well. Uh, he was a man of courage, it tells us. He went with boldness to Pilate. Now, um, you know, people tell us that you know the boldness of the disciples didn't come till after the resurrection. But is that true? No, there was boldness. There is boldness all through the Bible. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Were they bold? Yeah, yeah, they were bold. They stood before Nebuchadnezzar. He said, if you don't bow down, you'll be cast into the fiery furnace. They said, our God can deliver us. He might not, they said. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. They were bold. They had courage. Where did that courage come from? How could they have such courage and anticipation of being cast into the fire? Well, they had this verse from Isaiah. If you pass through the fire, as you walk through the fire, what does it say? I will be with you. And so they simply just believe the word of God. That's what faith is. And so courage. Hey, Joseph was a man of courage before the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I suggest to you this morning he got it from studying the word of God. We get that from the life, his life and his partnership with Nicodemus. They are responsible for 
what some have said is maybe the greatest act of love shown to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Love and devotion to Christ Maybe the greatest act. Now, I'm assuming that, that the writer means maybe the most because he would also be considering Mary of Bethany. But so here are these two men, Nicodemus, who we've been introduced to, Joseph of Arimathea. Let's read this account. It's in verse 38. It says, after of this, oh, sorry, of John chapter 19. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in stripes of linen and with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury now in the garden where he was crucified, there was a, or sorry, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Leonard Sheldrake has a book entitled The Plant of Renown. Has anybody read that book? Jabe says that his um, grandfather used to read it every year to keep his soul fresh before the Lord. Uh, he has a chapter entitled The Renowned of His Burial and basically emphasizes or lays out the points that I'm going to make from this passage here in John chapter 19. Uh, he asks these questions. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, why would a man who's rich, according to Matthew, um, have a tomb 25 miles to the south of where he lives. That's how far Jerusalem is from Arimathea, 25 miles south. So he's a rich man in Arimathea. Why does he come down and purchase a tomb in Jerusalem? And people say, well, oh, hey, lots of people wanted to be buried in Jerusalem. But it was sort of the, um, you know, as you read through the Old Testament, you see that People made it when they were buried in Jerusalem. That's where the kings were buried, right? And so sometimes you see that a king who didn't do very well, uh, thankfully he wasn't buried in the tombs of the king, but he was still buried in the city of Jerusalem. So it makes a distinction. But of course we read from this passage that the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had was not in Jerusalem. It was nearby to the place where Christ was crucified was basically Golgotha, Calvary. Why would Joseph of Arimathea buy a tomb plot at the place called Calvary? Would it be because when uh, his family came to visit him that he would want them to be exposed to the shrieks and wailing of criminals being crucified? That couldn't be. It couldn't be that. Um, if he was a rich man, why would he dig his own tomb? Because that's what it says. He hewed it out of the rock himself. It's impossible that he was doing it for himself. 
he must have been doing it for somebody else. Well, Leonard Sheldrake says, who did he bury in his tomb? He placed the body of the Lord Jesus Christ with Nicodemus in this tomb that he'd hewed with his own hands. Is it possible that he had anticipated what was going to happen? Do you think it is? Was there any way that the disciples could have known that the Lord Jesus Christ was going up to Jerusalem to die and to be buried and the third day be raised again? Could they know that? Keep your finger here and turn back to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he, that's Christ, took the twelve aside and said to them, listen to these words, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon, They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Could these men have known? Of course they could. What do you think this verse means? (laughs) Well, it's so clear. It's impossible, isn't it? Looking back, it's impossible to misinterpret what he's saying. What he's saying is exactly what he's saying. Some of them didn't understand, though. But I'm going to suggest to you that Joseph and Nicodemus did. They had this key to the Old Testament that seems the others the time didn't have. Understood about the types. That Christ would die on a cross. Could they have known that? Of course they could. That's exactly the picture the Lord Jesus used for Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That it would be lifted up. On a cross. Could those men, in anticipation of this, uh, would it be possible that they could have pre-planned in such a way that they could be used to bury the Lord Jesus Christ? Was it random? No, they'd anticipated. They'd studied, looked into the scriptures, discerned that Christ was going to die, was going to be lifted up. Could they know the place? Yeah, as they studied the types, they could know the place. Way back in Genesis chapter 22, that beautiful picture of a father and a son going together to Mount Moriah. The Lord says to Abraham, in the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. Leonard Sheldrake says that from the temple mount, the priests could see Calvary. That that verse was literally fulfilled. That when the darkness lifted, they would be able to see the three crosses standing on the hill. In the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. So these men could have figured it out. They could have figured it out from the scriptures. Maybe the Lord told them themselves. But they could know the place. 
Could they know the time of the year? Exodus 12, the Passover. Could they know the hour? They could know the hour. Could they know the year? Do you think they could know the year? Hey, Sir Robert Anderson figured it out. Sir Robert Anderson tells us that he works forward from the book of Daniel and the Lord Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the day he was supposed to. The exact time, time he rode in. Hey, if Sir Robert Anderson, the great mind that he was, he could figure it out. Hey, Nicodemus and Joseph could figure out the year. And so they planned. Um, could they somehow know it was them? Yeah, they could. Isaiah 53, verse 9. What does Isaiah 53, verse 9 say? He made his grave. They made his grave with the wicked. Right? That's what they intended to do. Hey, it wasn't, it wasn't random that they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ between two thieves. They made his grave with the wicked. That was their intention for him. There's really a but in there. There's a word of contrast. You look it up and it's true. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown will show you that in their commentary in the original language. There's a contrast there. Uh, they made his grave with the wicked, but God with the rich in his burial. That's really what the verse should say. Uh, they had an intention for him, but God had something else planned that it would be with the rich in his burial. And so, I don't know, Nicodemus and, and Joseph are reading through and they come to Isaiah 53, that forbidden chapter for a Jew. And they see themselves there as the rich that could be involved in his burial. And so, Joseph of Arimathea goes and buys this plot. He has somebody plant a garden and build a wall. And then he hews with his own hands this tomb for the purpose to bury the Savior. Then him and Nicodemus come together and they plan for the linen. And they plan for the hundred pounds of spices. That wasn't on the day of his burial that that happened. They planned for that. You know, John tells us that, that they were secreted, that he was secreted. Uh, really, uh, Andrew Bonar and W.E. Vine will show us that that really means is he was secreted by the Jews. He had his plan and he didn't want anybody to stop him. And so he was forced into secrecy so that he, his plan wouldn't be abandoned, that he could pull it off or they could pull it off. And so people say, well, where were all these things hidden? Where were they on the day the Lord Jesus Christ died. Well, Leonard Sheldrake says they were most likely hiding in the tomb. They'd be safe in the tomb, right? Four days before Passover, every tomb in Jerusalem had to be whitewashed. Every Orthodox Jew would have avoided the garden tomb. And so they could have hid the spices in there. They themselves could have hid in there. That's how they were able. That, hey, hey, Joseph went to the to Pilate to request the body of the Lord Jesus immediately after he cried out. Pilate was surprised he was already dead. And so here's these two men I suggest to you hiding in the darkness. 
they hear these words, it is finished. This loud cry that goes up. They knew what that meant. And so immediately, Joseph goes with boldness to request the body of the Savior. Uh, he, he crosses from the garden tomb to the cross with one of the soldiers. Uh, maybe he waits while the soldier goes back to tell by. We're not sure, but there he is. And he removes the body of the Lord Jesus from the cross. Him, Nicodemus, in sight of all of those scribes and Pharisees, prepare his body for burial and give him a king's burial. All the others, it seems, had forsaken and fled. Here, God had reserved this great act of worship for these two men who were sensitive to the scriptures. And they had this privilege of burying the body of the Lord Jesus. Did it cost them? Well, numerically it cost them. It cost them monetarily. Did it cost them in other ways? Yes, their uh, life in the Sanhedrin, as counselors in Israel, was done that day. You know, in Leviticus chapter 6, it talks about the care that the priest, the priest would have concerning the, the ashes of the burnt offering, that the ashes of the burnt offering was important to the Lord of how it was cared for. And so the priest had to wash his body and change his garments as he carried the ashes into the outside place. Leonard Sheldrake says that that's pictured here. It's these two men. This change of priesthood. They'd been associated with the Judaism. They'd been associated with the temple. Hey, they knew as they crossed to the cross with the linen garments and the spices, they knew what it was going to cost them to bury the Lord Jesus. They were no longer associated with that old system. It goes on to say they were now priests of a different kind priests of a royal nature just like us right we're of a royal nature and so they had this opportunity to bury the Lord Jesus I mean historically they tell us that life was never the same for those two men that um, Nicodemus actually died a pauper don't know if that's true or not but it's not unlikely he was one of those people of faith that Hebrews talks about who'd suffered for the cause of Christ and whom the world was not found worthy. He's rich now, right? And so we have that opportunity as we allow the word of God to direct our steps and make sacrifices for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the story at the beginning. We talk about Svei Flood. That's what she did. Called of God to lay down her life. Fruit for eternity. Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea. Fruit for eternity. We want our lives to count for something. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen apart from sensitivity to the word of God doesn't happen apart from the direction of Scripture. And so God has a plan for each one of our lives, a purpose. We don't want to miss out on that. 
want to hear him speak to me today. Change me, direct me. Make my life count for something. Not this life, for the next life. And so we've thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We were reflecting this morning on two men who were involved in his burying. And the privilege it is to be able to spend an eternity with not just the Savior, but people who's had their lives speak the lives of others. So we want to be those people. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful this morning for your word. We ask that something could be useful to the hearts of your people today, that, Father, you could take your word this morning and that it could find our hearts sensitive that could be planted and that it could grow and bring forth fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Father, we know you're able to do that. And so we just ask that you would work in our life. Bless us and in turn make us a blessing to others. Thank you for your people here, for the assembly, for the testimony, for each life, for each family. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.